My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors on staff. I'm prepared. This is water, so you know. We moved here in July, and I'm pretty confident that I'm still getting used to Texas weather. Allergies apparently are a big deal here, so um, I'm doing my best. Uh, if you brought a Bible, we're continuing along in the book of Second Corinthians, and um, we are in chapter 6, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 967 of the, uh, the Pew Bible there. And before I read this, you know, I was thinking, you know, how do you, what do you say post-Easter, post-resurrection you know, service, here we are a week out, and uh, then it hit me easy, well, you remind us about the resurrection, because if you're like me, I've forgotten it. You know, I didn't forget about the flowers or, or what, what, what we did last week, but in many ways my heart has forgotten, which is what we're really going to talk about this morning, that the resurrection says that, that Jesus, that God himself has attached himself to us and he's coming to dwell with us. And that process begins with the resurrection and it's where we're headed. And so what I really want to do, especially as it pertains to this section in 2 Corinthians, is remind us of that. But appeal to our hearts for that as well. Because this is the final section in this first major section of 2 Corinthians for Paul. If you've been traveling along with us. And in this section, in this text we're about to read, Paul makes his final appeal to the Corinthians of all that he's been saying before this. To simply open their hearts to him. And to begin to live and reflect have their lives reflect the reality of what is true, that God, in fact, is coming to dwell with them bodily, bodily. So with that in mind, let me read for us. I'm actually going to begin on verse 13, um, our text this morning. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. In return, and I speak as to children, widen your hearts also, Paul says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises then, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this morning. We thank you for the chance to be here as your people to worship you. And at this time of our, of our service, we pray for your spirit to graciously be poured out over us as you promise to do. Uh, that you would soften our hearts. That you would open our eyes and our ears. That we may hear and see things otherwise we could not. So that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. A friend of mine tells the story of uh, taking a, a plane trip 
And I can't remember for the life of me where he was going, and that's okay because it has no bearing on the point of the story. But he gets on the plane and sitting there, and, and if you've flown, you know that there's a tendency to uh, for planes not to take off when they're supposed to take off. And so this sort of sat there for a while, and people were kind of wondering what was going on. And while they were waiting, sort of, I think it was about three or four rows in front of him, there were these two guys. And they had been there, they got on the plane before he did. And even as he passed them, you know, the, the drinks, the beverage service was already flowing. We'll put it that way. And they were having a good time. And so much so that everybody sort of around them could really hear about this good time. Uh, and then it got kind of a little uh, uncomfortable because, you know, they were going for round two. The plane hadn't taken off yet. And some choice words were coming from those seats. And it was clear they were heading to some bachelor party and... Um, and, and you can kind of see what was going on here. Just the scene was getting a little bit more rowdy and a little more rowdy. And, and of course, in his mind, he's thinking, do I have to sit here and listen to this, you know, for the duration of my flight? Well, all of a sudden, you know, the pilot comes on and says, hey, we were finally ready. We're waiting for, for one more. And here come a couple of these people, these last people to get on the plane. And, and, and in the very back, the last person coming was actually a nun. It was, it was a nun, uh, flowing robes and all, however you, you know, describe what, what nuns wear. But she had it all on, you know, the hat. It's not even called a hat, I know, but the gown. Um, I'm Protestant, sorry. Uh, but it, it was interesting because you can probably guess where she sat. She sits right in front of these two guys. And, and not... She didn't, you know, pick this. It was the only thing really available. So she, but she just sits there. She doesn't know what's going on. She's just getting on the plane. And, and my friend sort of begins to think, oh, my goodness, what is about to happen? What is about to happen? And then he, he says this. He says, for the next two and a half hours, whatever the duration of the flight was, he says, those two guys didn't make a sound. <laughs> Party's over. No. Um, it was fascinating to him because as we began to talk about this, you know, he, he was drawn to, you know, really the, the imagery of, of, of the uniform and, and how the presence of that image, uh, what it really spoke of, which, you know, for anybody watching was really the presence of God in one sense. And how that very presence, how when it dwelt among them, if you will, changed everything, changed everything for them. Well, as we come to this text in 2 Corinthians, it's actually Paul's closing remarks to them. And what he's telling them is, look, God is coming to dwell in your midst. And because that's true, this changes everything. This changes everything. And what Paul longs for the Corinthians, what his appeal really is, is is that their lives would begin to reflect this reality. That their lives would begin to look like what it means and, and with all of its promises. You know, we looked at all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? That all their, lives, all their lives would begin to reflect those truths. And there's really just three ways that I want this to kind of come out to you. That, that it would reflect itself in the direction that their lives would be going. That it would f- reflect itself in the things that they would do. But ultimately that it would re- reflect itself... In the way that they would love. And this is Paul's appeal. And this is my appeal to you too. <laughs> so with that. With that um, let's take this first one. Um, how. Because God's going to dwell with us. 
how this changes the direction of our life. And another way to put this is that God's dwelling with us ties us to something. It ties us to something. Paul starts out in verse 14 saying, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And I really want to look at what does it mean to be yoked to something? A yoke is a wooden cross piece. I know pretty, you know, a lot of you know this. I Googled it. Not that I needed to, but I thought, let's do some research on some yokes here. Uh, I'm not a farmer. Um, but, you know, it was a wooden cross piece that fastened other uh, necks of two different animals uh, together and then attached it to a cart in order to plow a field, for example. An agrarian illustration that would have made perfect sense, obviously, to people in this age. But a yoke accomplished several things, and it's very obvious to us. And the first thing is that it literally tied you to something. That, that, it, that it brought you uh, one or two or, or even four things, and it made them one. You would take two of something, and let's, for the sake of cultural sensitivity, say, maybe you would take two longhorns, or maybe two bears, or maybe two horn frogs. All right. Um, and you would bring them together. Uh, And you would lock them into this frame called a yoke. And the purpose was to make the two become one. So instead of having the power of one longhorn plowing a field, you would have the power of two or four. And this is the first thing. And what it did, it tied things together. But secondly, what it did is it brought continuity. It brought a shared horizon to uh, these animals That wherever one went, the other went as well. And it was these two qualities of the yoke that Paul is really uh, um, wanting to bring home here to the Corinthians. That being tied to something and sharing in a common horizon is what he is trying to tap into as he writes this letter to the Corinthians. And the metaphor is obvious. Paul is simply appealing to the Corinthians saying, do not be tied or attached to something I want to make the caveat that doesn't necessarily take you where you don't want to go. But do not be tied to something that, that doesn't have the things of Jesus in mind. Don't be tied to something. Don't be yoked to something that is counter to or unequal to what is already attached to you in Jesus. There's, there's this tension here. Instead, let your life reflect the reality that who you are, in fact, attached to, that who you are, in fact, connected to or yoked to is Jesus. That it is his yoke that is directing your life and not someone else's. And see, for Christians, for us here this morning, the beauty of a post-Easter service is that where we are headed as followers, the the direction of our lives as those who find their faith in Jesus or place their faith in Jesus, it's so fresh on our minds. We are headed for bodily, physical living with God, not just spiritual, which Paul taps into as as, as what is going on now, that that our bodies, that our hearts and our minds, all we are the temple of the living God, he calls us, that God is in fact, dwelling with us spiritually, but that one day where we are going is that we will reside and be with God physically forever, that he will dwell with his people. And the Bible is so certain of this, it gives us these wonderful visions of it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city. 
New Jerusalem coming out of the heaven from God, prepared what? As a bride. There's that yoking metaphor there. As a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, what is it saying? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, Paul lives with this truth in mind, and he's saying to the Corinthians, this has already started. This is happening. It is finished. Would your lives begin to reflect that? Would your lives begin to reflect that? You know, just for the sake of interest, I love how the Bible, the story of Scripture, ends, it's bookends, if you will, ends with the same thing. It's God dwelling with his people in a garden, and it's God dwelling with his people And this new heavens and earth, which should tell you, as it tells me, that the whole point of this in in general is relationship. That God would be connected to you. And that our lives would reflect that reality. And for Paul, continuity or being equally yoked, as he says, determines direction. It determines where we are going. Which is why what we are yoked to matters. And if I could apply this first point, nothing has the power to influence you more than what you attach yourselves to. And this can be a job. It can be a marriage. It can be an idea of who you think somebody wants you to be. It can be self-approval. It can be pleasing other people. It can, be, it can be a number of different things, but nothing has the power to influence you more than this. And uh, for the sake of, of, of pushing the, the application a little further, just let's consider a marriage, for example, because of the yoking metaphor. See, Paul's fear of being unequally yoked is that it can take something. It can take something beautiful and in one sense make it nothing. And I have too many examples of friends or acquaintances who marry, for example, unequally and this is, this is kind of a touchy subject, I think, today. Uh, but by that, by bearing unequally, it's, it's one who puts, let's say, the practice of their faith first, the primacy in their life, connecting themselves with somebody who doesn't. Right? We might call this an unbeliever marrying a believer. And at first, it doesn't seem like a big deal. We're in love. Like, let's get married. We'll figure out the details later. And, of course, I'm coming from the college campus, too. Some of you all know that. And I saw a lot of this. And college students will figure this out later. It's not a big deal. Love wins out. Right? This is sort of the theme here. But let's fast forward. Let's play that out five years from now. And and every Sunday, you know, one spouse uh, gets up and goes to church, for example, because this is what's central in their lives. The other one doesn't. And I know you all maybe have experienced this in your own lives. And, and at first, you know, we think, well, what is wrong with that, right? We all got different things in our lives that we are about. And I like to go watch the football game, you know. Maybe the other person doesn't, and we do separate things. What's wrong with that? Well, what happens, and this is really the crux of it, and this is what Paul is so um, fixated on, is that neither can share in the deepest parts of their life with each other. Neither can share what is most... Um, crucial to them. They can't be known in the fullest way that they are called to be known. They can't be one as they are called to be one. Honey, I wish you could have heard the sermon or the music. 
here's what they said. It affected me so much. What do you think about that? Silence. And where the two are supposed to be one in marriage, they can't be one here. And so over time, what normally happens is that, well, the one person just gets tired of going alone. And so over time, without really even noticing it, we stay home. And now what was something has, in one sense, I want to be careful how I say this, becomes nothing in another. What's happened is you have yoked two people with completely different horizons. And this is Paul's point. And because of this, this has lasting effects on the direction of your life. Continuity or being equally yoked determines direction, determines where you're going, which is why what we are yoked to for Paul matters. And friends, it has to begin to matter to you too, especially if you find yourself yoked to Jesus. For Paul, the whole point of the resurrection is that in Jesus, we get this resounding yes. We we hear Jesus simply saying, I want to be the one who knows the deepest longings of your heart. I want to be that person. I want to be the one that goes with you and knows not only your deepest joys, but knows your deepest sorrows as well. I don't even want to, I don't just want to know those things, Jesus says through his resurrection. I want to actually redeem those things. I want to fix you. I want to fix those things. I want to make those things new again. But here's the deal. You can only share in that as if you, if you share in my resurrection. And the only way that we can share in that resurrection is if we are tied to him. Only. This is the emphasis for Paul. This is where he's coming from. This is, this is the emotion in this text, if you will, of why this matters. It has eternal implications for him. And it lends itself to this question, Corinthians, where are you going? This is his appeal. Where are you going? What are you tied to? And it would be good for us to hear this as well. Well, once the yoke sets that direction, our lives then work towards those ends. And this gets to my second point. That because God is making his dwelling place with us, this changes what we do. This changes what what we do. To continue with the yoke metaphor, when you tie two animals together, what this did was set the two animals on a common horizon. Most of the time, that horizon was a field, uh, you know, agrarian, right, picture here, a field of plowing. And, you know, it was... Go together, go straight, go in this direction is uh, what I would imagine being said. Maybe it was a fixed point that the yoke was, was targeted towards or pointed towards. And by walking together, and here's the point, by walking together on that fixed horizon, like the work got done. Maybe even without even noticing it, right? The field was plowed. And for Paul, the common horizon for, for the Corinthians and really for all Christians is the kingdom of God. And this is what it's always been since we left the garden. It is the kingdom of God that if God has really attached himself to us, that it is his kingdom we are headed towards. And as we move towards that horizon, the work of the kingdom, uh, summarized by loving, loving neighbor and loving God, begins to happen. This type of kingdom work is often referred to in the Old Testament as being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Or as Paul quotes here in verse 17 from Isaiah 52, 
It's a calling to be separate. Which, which also literally means coming out. And, and, and now you, his appeal to the Corinthians, as you can begin to see this, is, look, come out from these dark places. And what's funny is it's not so much a doing, although that is there, it's a being. It's a being. Be separate. And this raises a lot of questions for us. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time here because I think one of the questions this raises for us, because uh, it raises it for me, is what in the world then does it mean to be separate? What do I have to do? How do I belong in the world maybe and not of it perhaps is something that we might be thinking. For example, is Paul literally saying here that we should have no relationship, no fellowship with unbelievers at all? Might be a question you're even asking yourself this morning. And first, we've got to do a little bit of work here. What are the Corinthians doing in the first place that is so bad? Like, what is Paul actually uh, saying to them? What are they doing that he's saying to them to stop being unequally yoked to? And in one sense, I think this is kind of hard for us to relate to. But it's you know, what Paul is saying, and as he refers here to non-believers, is that he is actually talking about people in the church who practice pagan cultic worship. I haven't met all of y'all. I don't know what you're doing after church today. But the chances are you're you know, not going to your backyard and sacrificing some type of animal to some foreign god that you believe exists, right? And, and this is why I say it's kind of hard for us to get our, our minds around this, but this is what was happening in the church, right? There, was, there were people who were clearly not believers inside the church practicing cultic um, pagan um, uh, worship, worship. And the people, they, they were bringing people with them, essentially. People were attaching themselves to this, as Paul has said. In the five rhetorical questions that follow, it's clear that Paul is not just speaking of everyone who doesn't profess Christ, but he's talking about those who are in the church still practicing these things. And he's calling them to separate. And the Corinthians wrestled with this question of separation, asking, is it okay to even be around an unbeliever? (laughs) And and we would have to go back, uh, because Paul addressed this in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5. Uh, Verse 9 and 10, this very thing, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, this is another letter, uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, he says, the sexually immoral of this world. Non-believers. That was 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Or, Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And this is kind of funny. Because what Paul is saying is, first, the only way for you to not associate with unbelievers, if this is what you think I'm saying, is for you to actually leave the planet, to go to Mars, which is becoming more of a reality now. But that's what you would actually have to do. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, that would be counter, not just counter to God's mission, but counter to Easter. Right? Where God actually came here. And this is good for us to hear because I think we can operate like this in the world, maybe even without even knowing it. We can isolate ourselves from non Christians and creation, even in, in order to fulfill the goal of not becoming like the world. And what Paul has in view here are actually cultic practices with those in the church who are not believers. 
Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 5. Don't turn there. This is right after he said you would have to get out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Well, who would that be? That would be fellow Christians. Be people of the church. He's talking about those inside the church. And why would he want to do this? And this is where this kind of ties back into um, our sermon. That this actually helps us understand what it means to be separate. It actually helps us understand what it means to be in the world but not of it. It's protecting what we are truly yoked to in Christ. Manifested by his church today. So that we don't lose our horizon as we go out into the world that God loves and and God is redeeming. This has always been the calling of what it means to be separate in Scripture. To remember who has yoked himself to you first. And that by remembering that, by taking on that horizon, if you will, our lives almost naturally begin to reflect that reality. Let me try to illustrate this with a story. Cliche, I know, um, but... I. I haven't had a chance to share my testimony with everybody. This is a little bit of it. I'll try to be brief. But my freshman year, I decided to join a fraternity. Say what you will about that. And uh, I was, you know, I had this wonderful idea that I would go and, and, and join this fraternity because I was going to save these people. Um, right? Who, what, what better intentions uh, you know, are there to join a fraternity? And I was going to be salt and light. And this was going to be wonderful. But the problem was there was no Christian community that I was tied to as I landed in a new place, in a new college, in a new school. And so, you know, I was literally a dog yoked to a longhorn. I didn't have a chance, you know. And, I, and, and, and as I talk about this and I reflect upon this time in my life, I, I literally woke up, literally and figuratively woke up sometime in that spring semester, February, thinking, okay, well, what is it that Christians do again? Oh, they go to church. That's right. I, haven't, I hadn't done anything. And not that that's necessarily the point of the story, but what, what, what was surprising to me, you know, is that my life for a solid semester and even more reflected exactly what it was I was tied to. But I had no footing, if you will, in God's community in order to maintain direction and horizon. I was no longer just in the world. I was of it because I shared its horizon and its only. At least this, is, this makes sense to me. I'm sure you can apply this to your own lives in different, different ways. But I did what everybody else was doing because I had no other focal point, so to speak. And if I'm honest, I did what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until later, by God's grace, that I found myself being brought back into God's community, being brought, being brought back into his church through other ministries. But the tendency then, and this is, this is, this is where I really want to bring home to, to you all this morning with this illustration. The tendency then was to just come into God's people and into his church and just be so excited to find Christians and to find uh, like-minded people that we want to stay here. And that's what we did. We had people leaving all their organizations and coming into these ministries and saying, oh, isn't it so great that we found each other? But something just didn't sit well with that. What, what about this whole mission of God thing? What about being light in dark places? And see, we can be in the world and not of it by being in, the, in this very place. Because if you're not going out into dark places, you're not attached to Jesus whose church and his mission is to go out into this world. You might be in a different place, an all that better place, but our hearts may still be longing to be attached to a a yoke of comfort, 
right? A, a yoke of, ah, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is about as far as I want to go. I don't want to go out there, which was the whole point of God's mission and what he was doing with his calling for Israel, but also us too now, to be separate, to be in the world, but not of it. It's not to remove yourselves completely, but it's also not to isolate yourselves. It's to be able to go into a place to bring the horizon of God, if you will, into a place that is dark and needs it. And after all, isn't that our story as well? Weren't we all at one point in darkness, but we were able to be brought into the light of the gospel? Yes. So what it means to be separate. But the warning for Paul is that this cannot happen if you are yoked to something other than Jesus. <clears throat> If you are sharing another horizon that isn't his. And this gets to my last point. What you love is often what is indicative of what we attach ourselves to. What we attach ourselves to. What you love for Paul has always been a reflection of what it is you are truly yoked to. And this is, this is the dagger. We tie ourselves, y'all, to what we love. Ada and I will celebrate 10 years of marriage this May. Praise the Lord. She stuck it out so far. As I've begun to reflect on this, um, this 10 years, and I will continue to do so, the question has emerged, or the question that has emerged, you know, sort of the refined question over 10 years, has, it's kind of been a question that is sort of uneasy to, to mention, but it, it's a question that says this, Ryan, who do you love? Ryan, who do you love? That, that's really what 10 years of marriage has really, at this point, um, brought to the surface. You know, after 10 years, I've never loved someone, and this is sort of the, the paradox of this. I've never loved someone, my wife, Ada, more. That's, that's, that's for, for, for certain. But at the very same time, I've never been more acutely aware of how much I love myself. Right? This is that paradox. And any relationship will show you this about yourself if you let it. I've never seen what I love change more than it has in 10 years. But I've also never been more aware of how much I love me some me. And this is what I'm calling the crisis of separation. Which happens to be the title of your sermon. This sermon. And that is the crisis of separation for us is recognizing that we have a heart that doesn't want to let go of the things that it loves. That we have a heart that doesn't want to let go of idols. We have a heart that doesn't want to fully separate from the things that it wants. Money, sex, and power, just to name a few. But the good news is, the good news is, is that the gospel of God, of the gospel of God, is that he is coming to dwell in your midst. And he's coming to do this anyway. Despite, despite uh, the reality that our hearts long to be connected to things other than him. And God has moved in. He's moving in. And in that breath, which I think is terrifying for us to think about, it is sobering at, be- at, at, at worst. There's a fear there, if you will. But he's moved in to complete this work of separation in our, in our lives Bringing holiness to completion, as Paul puts it. And do you know what that begins to look like? And I wanted to really attach this 
for us practically. And this is Paul's appeal to the Corinthians. What that begins to look like, what the holiness that Paul's talking about begins to show up as in our lives is love in its purest form. That we begin to love Jesus. That we begin to love the things that he loves. He loved, we begin to love his church. That we begin to love neighbor. That we begin to love our spouses, our siblings, right? That we begin to love our, our co-workers even. Um, we begin to love the creation. Why? Because God made it. It looks like love. But you know what that requires of us? It requires us to die of what our hearts want. This is the practice of the cross all over again. It requires us dying to what our hearts want so that we might begin to love something else. That we might begin to love what Jesus loves. This is why for Paul, this yoking imagery, what we are attached to is indicative of what it is we love. And what God longs to do in that process is as he attaches himself to you, just like, he, just like a marriage, it changes what you love. It changes everything about what you love. See, for Paul, it requires dying to the direction that you want your lives to go in. Right? All the dreams that you had. It requires dying to those things and being able to say, Jesus, your ways are better. It requires dying to the stuff you want to do just because you want to do it. And requires taking on someone else's horizon. Someone else's dreams. Someone else's vision. Someone else's plans. Someone else's kingdom. The kingdom of our risen Lord. And that, my friends, is true separation. But none of us want that kingdom. <clears throat> And this is the burden of the text. We don't want that kingdom. We'd rather be tied to something or belong to something else. And Paul knows that about us. And he knows that about the Corinthians. And that's the problem with our hearts. That's why what you love is a reflection of, of what you truly are attached to. It's why our hearts are idle factories. They can't stop. That's why you need a new heart. And that's why you need someone to literally jump in after you and get you. And that's the beauty of a post-Easter sermon because we already need reminding that what Jesus has done in the resurrection is he has jumped in after us and he has promised us a new heart. We get one. And in doing so, he's promised to be with us forever. And that is happening now. He has yoked himself to us so that as he loves so that what he loves becomes what we love also, so that his dreams become ours. So that his horizon becomes our horizon and his loves and joys and even his sorrows become ours and vice versa. It is a marriage. It is a marriage. And the resurrection makes it so certain that this will happen. Paul says, since we have these promises in closing in verse 1 of chapter 7. It's already here. Since we, it's, it's not, since we might have these problems if you guys fix this or, you know, it's not, this could happen. This has happened. And what are the promises? I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters of me. God coming to dwell in your midst. How can that not change what you love? In fact, that has to change everything. It is a game changer. So Corinthians, Paul says, what do you love? 
What do you love? What are you tied to? And where is it taking you? Because Jesus says my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I've come to dwell in your midst. Would your life begin to reflect that and the direction it is going and what you're doing, the horizon you're taking up, but more fully in what you love, more fully in what you love. Because when that kind of love finds you, when it jumps in after you, it does change everything. And that is the message of a post-resurrection service, that that reality has come true. Let us begin the process of allowing that to reflect itself in our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of coming back on a Sunday, maybe even wondering if what we heard last Sunday was even true. (laughs) Did this really happen? And I can even imagine now that I'm sure some of the disciples thought the same thing. Did, Did this really happen? And it did. And because that's true, there's now a new calling for God's people. There's a new calling for us to reflect that reality. To know that it is God himself who has attached himself to us. And because that's true, because he is dwelling in our midst, this changes everything. And we learn to love that. We learn to be broken by that. We learn to love others because of that type of love. And would your church reflect that to a dying world that so desperately needs a message of hope and of new life and resurrection. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.